Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I am Jake Tapper, and we begin today, of course, with our health lead and the coronavirus pandemic which continues to escalate across the United States of America. Today, Florida is reporting a record high number of deaths in one day. On the other side of the country, the mayor of Los Angeles said that that city is on the verge of having to return to the strictest level of stay-at-home orders. The great city of Philadelphia is canceling all large city events until March 2021. And Dr. Anthony Fauci is warning that we have not even begun to see the end of this pandemic. While, of course, the White House is conducting a bizarre campaign to undermine Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert. White House Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino this week posting this deranged cartoon attacking Fauci, putting this on Facebook. And as the president is set to speak next hour, let us take stock of another time that President Trump addressed the nation from the Rose Garden to talk about the coronavirus, specifically three months ago today. April 14th, when the president at the coronavirus task force briefing made a series of assertions that were not true then and continue to be flat out wrong, starting with the spread of the novel coronavirus. But in almost all cases, it's all starting to come down. It is certainly not starting to come down. Not then, not now. Infections are skyrocketing. We're averaging 60,000 new cases a day compared to the peak of 36,000 back in April. Here's President Trump on the death toll, which three months ago was just over 25,000. The minimum was 100,000 deaths, and I hope to be substantially under the minimum, meaning we all hope, Mike, right? We all hope to be substantially under... Here we are three months later, more than 136,000 people in the United States have lost their lives to coronavirus. The U.S., with less than 5% of the world's population, has nearly 25% of the world's coronavirus deaths, according to numbers compiled by Johns Hopkins University. The U.S. government response is empirically a failure. And a top Trump official, Admiral Brett Gerwais, is sounding the alarm today that the death toll in the U.S. is expected to continue to climb. To bring that down, of course, we need to isolate the virus with testing. So what did President Trump say about testing three months ago? We will be utilizing our robust testing capacity for the governors. We'll be giving them what they need if they don't have it themselves. Giving them what they need. When is that going to happen, Mr. President? Testing in the U.S. remains grossly inadequate as your own former acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, just acknowledged this week after his family was personally impacted by testing lags. Testing and contact tracing is nowhere near where it needs to be to isolate and contain this virus. Three months ago, the White House Coronavirus Task Force presented strict guidelines for how states, when ready, could begin to reopen. And President Trump suggested the federal government would step in 
if any state did so before it was safe to do so. There are some that want to open up almost now. Now, if we disagree with it, we're not going to let them open. We're not going to let them open. The White House didn't do that. In fact, quite the opposite. President Trump attacked Democratic governors for trying to keep their states locked down. And the president pressured states to reopen. And states flung open the doors, even though health experts said not one state, not one, met the White House guidelines at all. The federal government has been lying to you about the coronavirus. But more importantly, the federal government has been failing you with fatal results. And now with these failures naked before us, as CNN's Erica Hill now reports, state and local officials in at least half the country are having to start to shut the country back down again. Across the country, reality setting in. This is the problem. There is no roadmap, no plan for the country. The U.S. now averaging more than 60,000 new cases a day. 20 states starting the week with their highest seven-day average. Reopening is paused or in reverse in more than half of all states. Philadelphia just canceled all large events through the end of February 2021. And South Florida continues to break records. Miami is now the epicenter of the pandemic. What we were seeing in Wuhan six months ago, five months ago, now we are there. The positivity rate in Miami-Dade County, which accounts for nearly a quarter of the state's cases, is almost 30 percent. Nearly 200 employees at Jackson Health, the area's largest hospital system, are out sick with COVID-19. People aren't respecting this virus, especially younger people. California setting new records for hospitalizations and ICU admissions, with the majority coming from Los Angeles County. In Harris County, Texas, home to Houston, hospitals are approaching surge capacity. Officials there urging the governor to let them bring back a stay-at-home order. The longer we keep this going, pretending like these incrementalist restrictions are going to fix the problem, the longer it's going to take to recover. Testing and a significant lag in getting those results, still an issue months into the pandemic. And if you swab uh, and then you get the, the results back in seven days, you know, that's not ideal. And particularly if you're if you have symptoms, 40 percent of infected cases are asymptomatic, according to the CDC. Yet the country's testing czar is encouraging some Americans to hold off in places like Arizona and Texas. If you wake up in the morning, and just feel like you want to test um, you're you might not need to do that. Right. We need to think about those who are at high risk or in high risk situations. Schools a flashpoint as the administration insists in-person learning must be the standard, though without offering a strategy. The countries that have managed to safely reopen schools, they've done so with declining infection rates, not rising infection rates. Well, I mean, and they on-demand testing available. California has neither of those. San Diego, Los Angeles and Atlanta announcing plans to begin the year online as new polling from Axios and Ipsos shows most parents say it would be risky to send their kids back in the fall. CDC Director Robert Redfield is optimistic. I actually think a majority of counties um, would meet the criteria provided that the teachers have the confidence to reopen, the administrators have the confidence to reopen, and the parents. 
actually heard a fair amount from Dr. Redfield today in a separate webinar with the Journal of the American Medical Association just a short time ago. He was asked about predictions, and he said he's really reluctant to predict anything with this virus because he just got to know it six months ago. And he said, Jake, he was one of the people who early on thought that maybe we'd see it die down a little bit in July and August. Obviously, that has not happened. He went on to say that he is very concerned about the fall and winter 2020 to 2021. And he said keeping hospitals from getting overwhelmed is really going to define how this is handled. All right, Erica Hill in New York. Thank you so much. Speaking of New York, New York's Democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo, seems to be on something of a victory tour, congratulating the state and himself for defeating the virus, even selling this poster, which shows his state getting over the mountain by bringing down the curve during the 111 days of hell, as the governor put it. The poster includes references to his daughters and a boyfriend, little inside jokes. There are no illustrations, however, of the more than 32,000 dead New Yorkers, the highest death toll by far of any state. No rendering on that poster of criticism that Governor Cuomo ignored warnings, no depiction of the study that he could have saved thousands of lives had he and Mayor de Blasio acted sooner. No painting there on the poster of his since rescinded order that nursing homes take all infected patients in. Here's what Governor Cuomo had to say yesterday. What we went through and what we did was historic because we did tame the beast. We did turn the corner. We did plateau that mountain. And then we came down the other side. And they will be talking about what we did for decades to come. Here to discuss this and more is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, look, I know a lot of New Yorkers are happy that the infection numbers are down. And, you know, we all hope that they stay down. But let's be clear, this is revisionism. And a lot of the crowing and Governor Cuomo going on late night is, is offending a lot of New Yorkers, given the fact that this is the highest death toll of any state, more than 32,000 dead. The next closest right. is New Jersey with 17,000. Are people going to be talking about what Governor Cuomo did for decades to come in the way he hopes? Uh, I, uh, unfortunately, I, I don't think so, Jake. I mean, I think we're very early days in this. You know, we're looking at the first few pages of, of the history books, and I think there's a lot more to be written. I'm a little surprised uh, by that poster, I got to tell you, because, you know, I think if anything, that's what this virus has taught us is that we need to have a significant amount of humility. This virus surprises us over and over again. There's no place in the country that's not vulnerable. And I think we should have learned, I think we have learned that victory laps are, are not the thing to be doing because we're, we're not through this by a long shot, sad to say, even in New York. I think there's two ways of sort of looking at this. You know, on one hand, the house was on fire and uh, Governor Cuomo helped put the fire out. But I think there's also, you know, we heard from a lot of uh, our, our medical contributors today, infectious disease specialists who say, look, I mean, part of the legacy, part of the story will be that did New York act too slowly as well initially? The house went on fire, why? Did it need to go on fire? The flip side, I think, Jake, as, as the governor is alluding to, is that if you look at the country as a whole right now, New York is the place, at least within the United States, that people will point to and say they did, they've done a good job. That's a place that has at least given a little bit of inspiration to other places that they can bring these numbers down like you see on the screen. But I got to tell you, uh, Jake, we heard from a lot of people today, some of it solicited, some of it unsolicited, and, and most everyone had some tone of, look, 
let's slow this down, this, this victory lap. You know, we're, we're very early days here. If, if people sort of get this sense of complacency, uh, we've seen it in other countries around the world, we've seen it here in the United States, and we've seen it throughout history, that can be a, a, a real problem, Jake. Humility, at the very least, called for. CDC Director Redfield said he does not believe that the explosion in cases in the South is because of reopening. He said it all simultaneously kind of popped. He pointed to the increase in travel during the Memorial Day weekend holiday. Uh, What do you make of all that? Yeah, I mean, and, and Dr. Redfield, I've interviewed him before. He, he was under the impression, uh, as Erica, Hill, uh, Erica Hill's piece just pointed out, that there would be a little bit of a lull with the warmer weather. And a lot of people sort of thought maybe that would happen. Clearly, that didn't happen here. I don't know, Jake. I, I was a little surprised by Dr. Redfield's comments here because uh, clearly you can look at the trajectory. You can look at the data. You can see that there was an impact of closing and then there was an impact of reopening. The only thing I would say is that, is that when, you, when you look at the mobility data around the country, uh, part of the reason you had such increased mobility to the southern states, including where I live here in Georgia and Florida, is because these states reopened. Same thing in South Carolina. So they became destinations even more so than normal in, in the spring months. So I think you know, he's right. I mean, there were several things that were happening at the same time. But there was increased mobility, and part of that increased mobility was happening because these states were reopening. There's no question that that, that fueled it. And, and you, you've got to point to, to the reopening because we, we understand the impact now pretty clearly from the data of what happened, at least when we shut down. Not saying that we need to do that in all these places again, but clearly that helped break the cycle of transmission. Sanjay, listen to what uh, the task force testings are. Admiral Bredgerwa had to say this morning. Even though we're turning the corner on the current outbreak, and it looks all indications are that we have that, we won't see the benefit in hospitalizations and deaths for at least another couple weeks. We are not there yet, but we are seeing some early uh, light at the end of this tunnel. Are we seeing early light at the end of this tunnel? It doesn't seem that way from where I sit. Uh, this, 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 was, this is baffling a little bit, Jake. I mean, I, we look at the same data here. You know, we're, this is an objective sort of story that we're telling, right? We can look at the numbers. We can look at what's happening in these places. And we've already had a little bit of history here. We see the case com- numbers go up, followed uh, shortly, you know, a couple of weeks later by hospitalizations and then sadly by deaths. I, I don't know. If there's a light at the end of the tunnel, which I hope there is and there is, we're going to get through this. It's a long tunnel still, Jake. So uh, we're all looking at the same data. I think what we're going to see, again, unfortunately, I, I don't relish saying this, but I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. So uh, the Admiral seems to be indicating that, look, uh, we're seeing the early indicators that uh, the hospitalizations are going to go down, death rates are going to go down. I think most people in the country now, not just public health experts, sort of understand that when you see the case numbers going up and the pace at which they're going up, hospitalizations are going to shortly there follow. Death rates will come uh, as well. They may not be as high in proportion as they were in the past because we have learned a few things, Jake. We know how to better care for these patients. There is a younger demographic that's being affected right now, but we know that this is going to continue to spread. Yeah. As always, we hope that our pessimism uh, is wrong. Uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, uh, thank you so much for your expertise, as always. As coronavirus cases spike, a new CNN Global Town Hall. Join Anderson Cooper and Sanjay with special guest, former CDC director, Dr. Tom Frieden, for coronavirus facts and fears. That's live Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Some breaking news. The president just sat for an interview. What is he saying about policing 
and the return to school amidst this pandemic. That's next. Plus, the new item in short supply because of the pandemic, why some major retailers want to keep your change. Stay with us. In our politics lead, as the White House continues its indecent and bizarre campaign to try to discredit Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of President Trump's closest allies, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, is rallying behind the nation's top infectious diseases expert. We don't have a Dr. Fauci problem. Any effort to undermine him is uh, not going to be productive, quite frankly. Meanwhile, the president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, which represents 12,000 medical professionals, also issued a statement calling the campaign from the White House to undermine Fauci disturbing. And to beat the virus, America must stand with science and with Dr. Fauci. But the president, of course, continues to be at odds with science and scientists and doctors. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, polls show many Americans do not like how the president is handling this pandemic. Cases are rising in the U.S., but there are new questions today about whether President Trump understands the crisis facing the nation. Despite scenes of Americans waiting in line for hours for COVID tests and accounts from his own former chief of staff about delayed results, Trump has refused to acknowledge the national surge. They're always talking about uh, cases, the number of cases. Well, it is a big factor that we do. We have a lot of cases because we have a lot of testing. The White House is instead dealing with the fallout after the press shop anonymously criticized Dr. Anthony Fauci in hopes of undermining him. Today, Joe Biden called the move disgusting. Mr. President, please listen to your public health experts instead of denigrating them. Even one of Trump's top Republican allies defended the nation's top infectious diseases expert today. We don't have a Dr. Fauci problem. I think any effort to undermine him is uh, not going to be productive, quite frankly. Fauci sat down with Chief of Staff Mark Meadows yesterday, but didn't see the president and still hasn't spoken to him in over a month. Asked if he's ever considered walking away from the job, Fauci said no. Because I think that if the, the, the issue at hand is so important that I think walking away from it is, is not the solution. I think that would just make things worse. Though the White House backed off of its criticism of Fauci after it backfired, one top aide to the president still seemed determined to bring him down a peg. Dan Scavino, the deputy chief of staff for communications, posted this cartoon on his Facebook page yesterday, portraying Fauci as a leaker surrounded by bubbles that said things like indefinite lockdown and shut up and obey. Scavino wrote that at least if he disagrees with a colleague, he'll do it publicly not behind their back, with the quote, see you tomorrow. Other task force members are also being forced to explain the president's comments. After he promoted a tweet that claimed the CDC and most doctors were lying about COVID-19, the testing coordinator, Admiral Joie, said they're not. You're not lying. Look, um, we may we may occasionally make mistakes based on the information we have, but none of us lie. We are completely transparent with the American people. And Jake, on another note, the president did an interview with CBS News today where he was asked a pretty straightforward question by the reporter who said, why are more black Americans or why are black Americans still being killed by police officers here in the United States? This is how the president answered. Why are African-Americans still dying at the hands of law enforcement in this country? And so are white people. So are white people. 
What a terrible question to ask. So are white people. More white people, by the way. More white people. So he goes from saying that George Floyd's death is terrible to saying it's a terrible question why he was asked why black people are still being caught, killed by law enforcement officers, Jake. And I want to point to a study from 2018 from the American Journal of Public Health that said that black men are 3.5 times more likely to be killed by police officers than white men are. Yet when the president was given a chance to address something that has really roiled the nation in recent weeks with many people saying that there needed to be changes changes to police policing and police reform overall after the deaths of people like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others. That was how the president responded to what was a simple question where the president could have sought to have a moment of unity for the nation and instead turned on the reporter asking the question, called it a terrible question and said that more white people are killed than black people. All right. All part of his campaign of racial grievance for white people. Caitlin Collins at the White House, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A top pediatrician joins me next. Why he says it's imperative that students return to the physical classroom in the fall as more schools announce online-only plans. Breaking news on our national lead right now. School kids in Northern California will split time between in-person and online learning this fall in North Carolina. As the CDC director says, a majority of the counties in the United States are in a position to reopen schools. That's in North Carolina. And it's a sentiment echoed in a new Wall Street Journal editorial board piece titled The Case for Reopening Schools. Joining me now to discuss is Dr. Dimitri Christakis. He's a professor of pediatrics and the director of the Center for Child Health, Behavior and Development at Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, Doctor, thanks so much for joining us. You support reopening some schools. You you say there's no one-size-fits-all approach here. But what do you think should be our our focus uh, in terms of getting kids back into the classroom? Well, you know, Jacob, let me start by saying that we've epically failed children in at least three ways. The first and foremost among them is the terrible job we've done controlling this pandemic, such that we're in the situation we're in, where in some, in some districts, uh, the virus is out of control. The second is the kind of abrupt way that we shut schools down and transition to distance learning without the requisite infrastructure or training uh, for most students to get a meaningful experience. And the third is that from the moment we closed schools, we didn't start planning how to reopen them. So all three of those put us in a position where now, a month from school opening, children are in a very, very difficult and perilous situation. Schools are essential for children, particularly for young children. And one of the most troubling things for me in many of these conversations is that we speak about schools monolithically, right? Open or close them, which is to say that a kindergartner or a first grade student is exactly the same in terms of his or her needs as a senior in high school. And that, that doesn't pass mm-hmm. the whiff test with anybody. So President Trump just spoke about reopening schools in an interview with CBS News. Take a listen. It's a terrible decision because children and parents are dying from that trauma too. They're dying because they can't do what they're doing. Mothers can't go to work because all of a sudden they have to stay home and watch their child and fathers. Uh, what's happening? You know, there's a tremendous strain on that whole side of the equation. So it's a-
So President Trump is a a very strong advocate for schools reopening in the fall, even though it's become clear that there really isn't any plan on the federal level for for how schools should reopen. Although, as you would argue, every school is different and every community is different. What do you think? You you favor an effort to send kids to school. Um, What should school superintendents do when they make their decision? How do do you make up your mind whether or not to open a school to in-person physical attendance instead of online? So the first thing we have to recognize as a superintendent or as a teacher or as a parent is that we can't treat all children the same. We have to recognize that the needs of primary school children and children with special needs have to be given priority. Primary school kids cannot learn well through distance learning. Any credible teacher, parent, pediatrician, child development expert knows that. So they're not effectively getting much of an education at all, unless they're being homeschooled effectively by their parents. Now, why is that important, Jake? Well, the single best predictor of high school graduation is third grade reading level. A child who is not reading at grade level in third grade is four times less likely to graduate than a child who is. A low-income child not reading at grade level in third grade is six times less likely to graduate high school than a child who is. So if we start with the premise that distance learning doesn't work well, if at all, for primary school kids, and we're in a situation now where virtually all of them have been at home for four months, and may likely be at home for another six months to a year, we have to realize that we are gonna pay a price for this. Our kids are gonna pay a price for this. Not today, but 15 years from now, we're gonna see the effect of what we're doing. So schools were the first thing to close and the last to open in most communities. From my perspective, it should be the exact opposite. So obviously you're a pediatrician and you care about the health of these kids. The concern is that even though uh, the coronavirus hurts children the least in terms of all the age groups based on the data we have, uh, that they can spread the disease and that there are kids who die uh, of coronavirus or affiliated illnesses. And even if they don't die, uh, there are kids who get really sick. So how do you balance that? Because obviously we all want the schools to open, but we also all want the, the kids to be safe. Right. So you're, you're exactly right that the risk posed to children from this virus, unlike, by the way, most viruses uh, that affect society, um, the risk posed to children in this case are low, much lower than adults. Um, so most children are at very, very low risk of suffering serious consequences. If a child gets coronavirus, there's about a one in 500 chance that they'll be hospitalized from it. And there is about a one in 50 to 100,000 chance that they'll die from it. So they're at very, very low risk. Not no risk, but very, very low risk. You're right that they pose a potential risk of passing that virus on either to a staff or a teacher at school or to a family member at home who could be at higher risk. How much of a risk they pose to to pass it on? You know, we still don't know definitively. And this is another failure on the part of our and other public health systems that we haven't figured out that part of the equation. Although it does seem that they are less likely to pass it on than adults are. Mm -hmm. Uh, That said, we should do everything we can to minimize their risk and staff and teachers' risks. So what do I mean by that? 
Staff and teachers should be provided medical grade PPE. We should treat them as essential workers and we should give them all of the safety equipment they need in order to be safe. Mm -hmm. Students should be able to mm -hmm. take meaningful precautions to reduce the risk of spreading the virus to themselves and to others. If possible, they should right. mask have hand hygiene, many of the things the CDC has recommended. Now, some of those things are aspirational and frankly will be very difficult to do either because of the children's age yeah. or developmental stage, or frankly, because of the, of the burden, the cost burden that some of them have. But those burdens shouldn't be borne by school districts. They need to be borne by the state and by the federal government. And as, as loud the as the yeah. federal government is arguing to send kids back to school, they're not at least from what I can tell, giving the resources needed to make that happen in a safe way. That's right. We, we discussed this yesterday. There needs to be a stimulus bill uh, to provide the money for these school districts to do this, especially for the neediest school districts. Dr. Dimitri Christakis, thank you so much. We'll have you back for your perspective. Always valuable. Appreciate it. Coming up next, anti-mask flash mobs. One group's despicable efforts in a coronavirus hotspot that's not getting much national attention. Stay with us. In our Healthy Today, a 71-year-old Utah man died while waiting in line for a coronavirus test. The man was brought to a testing site near Salt Lake City from a nursing home, according to emergency officials. By the time the driver reached the front of the line, the man was unresponsive. Utah, like many other states, is seeing longer lines at coronavirus testing sites and longer wait times to get results. I want to bring in Dr. Thomas Miller, who's the chief medical officer for University of Utah Hospital System. Dr. Miller, thanks for joining us. New coronavirus cases have surged in your state, now topping more than 600 a day in just the last week. Hospitalizations are also regrettably rising in Utah. People in your state across the country say they're waiting hours to get a test, days, if not weeks, to get results. What is the problem, do you think? So number one, there's, thank you for having me. Number one, there's, there's uh, testing capacity. And so across the nation, as well as here in Utah, uh, we would like to see the ability to do more testing, but that's not possible given the current conditions. And I would say in Utah though, we do have relatively rapid turnaround of our tests. Uh, and so we're not having to wait weeks, that's for sure. And no more than 48 hours, 72 hours. What is a problem are the long lines. So people are waiting in line for quite a while to get their tests. And as more and more people come to the test sites, they are outdoors. It's hot outside now. And we are trying to find a way to develop new tests that can be done in a different environment that makes it a little bit easier. And we're also trying to increase the capacity of our laboratories to do more testing, which will help test more people. So uh, with rising numbers of cases, more people want to be tested. And it's tough. It's really difficult. It's, it's tough. It's tough out there. It's hot. So Quest Diagnostics uh, says it's averaging seven days to turn around coronavirus test results due to the surging number of cases in the country and the soaring demand. Quest is one of the three major labs that has similar issues. Uh, there are a lot of people who thought that President Trump was going to invoke or should have invoked the Defense Production Act to force labs to uh, be able to do many more tests in terms of both administering the tests and also getting the results. Is something like that needed, do you think? Obviously, the, the private market is just not working the way it needs to. Well, whether you invoke or not, the question is, do you have the equipment? Do you have the ability? Do you have the platforms? Do you have all of the reagents and testing materials in order to increase testing capacity? So that is the major issue right now. Can we produce enough materials to do the testing? 
We've been fortunate in Utah that uh, we have local testing. We have our own uh, university lab site. There's also other sites in the, uh, in the state that are doing testing, and so our turnaround time is, is shorter than that for most areas. So we've been fortunate that way. But in terms of, of a mandate, it's like what a mandate. You, go ahead. Go ahead. No, in, in terms of a mandate, that's, that's fine, but you actually have to be able to up your manufacturing in order to, to meet the requirements uh, necessary to test many, many more people. Yeah, no, but that's what the Defense Authorization Act would do. The Defense Production Act would, would make sure there's more equipment, more labs available, et cetera. Um, right. What happens in Utah if you continue going at this level uh, in terms of new cases, in terms of new hospitalizations, uh, but, and your testing remains at the level it, it is now? So we can look around, we can look across our borders, we can see what's happening in Arizona, Texas, Florida, California. We know there are surges in those areas. Uh, they've seen rising numbers of cases. Uh, we are ready, we've prepared our hospitals uh, to take an increase in the number of patients. Um, we expect that we will see more patients hospitalized. We expect that the case rates will climb as they are now. We're okay right now, but we're expecting to have rising numbers of hospitalizations to the point that we fill our ICUs uh, within the next couple of weeks. We don't see that we would be any bit different. And what, 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 what are conditions on the ground right now at your hospital? What are conditions right now on the ground right now. at your hospital? How are they? We're, the conditions right now are fine. We're staffing at the levels that we need to to take care of the patients that we have. They're managed with the professionals and nurses and doctors that we have. But like I said, we've created separate areas and, and you know, ready, we're getting ready for that surge that we expect will come just as it has come in Arizona, Texas, and Florida, and other states where the numbers are rising. And people are getting back to work out of necessity, and the virus transmits between people who are close together, and, and so that's something that we can expect as people go back to work, and they need to go back to work. All right, well, stay in touch with us, Dr. Thomas Miller. We appreciate the work you do. Thank you so much. Coming up, short-changed, why the coronavirus pandemic is causing a low supply of coins. Stay with us. In the money lead today, Walmart, the nation's largest brick-and-mortar retailer, may soon require customers to wear masks in their stores across the country, even in states and counties where mask wearing is not mandatory. CNN's Christina Leshy was first to report Walmart's mask discussion. She joins me now. Christina, Walmart would not be the first retailer to implement its own mandatory mask policy, right? That's right. And a number of other major retailers have really stepped up in the absence of a federal government mask mandate. You're talking about retailers like Costco and Apple and even as recently as today, Best Buy saying that it will require customers to walk that walk into the store to wear a mask. Walmart only does it, as you said, where it is mandated from state and local officials. That is probably going to change. But at the heart of this issue is the lack of a federal government mandate. That's forced companies into a position where they have to decide between doing what's best to protect customers and employees and wading into a very politicized issue. Jake, that's not the only issue for these companies. It's also the enforcement piece of this. We have seen reports that people have turned violent when employees of these companies try to enforce the policy. That is an added layer of complication here, Jake. Yeah, it shouldn't be politicized, but it has become uh, that. The pandemic has presented another problem for Walmart, as well as other retailers, is a shortage of coins. 
The CNN business team did some digging, and this isn't just a few stores running out of, of pennies, right? No, this is a problem across a number of large retailers and small ones, Jake, and it's and it's a real one. We have heard of retailers like CVS, for example, tell tell customers to come in with exact change or encourage them to pay by debit and credit card because there is a coin shortage and they can't give the change uh, in cash. Uh, we've heard some retailers, in fact, encourage people to donate the amount that they would have gotten as change. Unfortunately, that is not possible for many Americans especially in the kind of financial situation that we find ourselves in at this very moment in time. This is a serious issue. And let me remind viewers that it did come up in Congress uh, nearly a month ago already when the Federal Reserve chairman was asked about this. Lawmakers uh, pressed him on this issue. He said that he'd work with the Mint to create more coins. But clearly, Jake, this is still a problem. All right, Christina Lesche, thank you so much. President Trump is expected to speak in the Rose Garden in just minutes, plus a major reversal from the Trump administration involving students. Stay with us. You're looking at live pictures of the White House Rose Garden, where we expect President Trump to speak in a few minutes, though it's unclear if he will take any questions from reporters. This comes amid some breaking news. The Trump administration is now reversing its policy that would have forced international students to leave the United States if their universities made classes online only. This is a big win for Harvard and MIT after those two schools sued the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration and Customs Enforcement last week. In our national lead today, we want to take time to remember one of the many coronavirus victims, in this case, 29-year-old Joshua Obra, who died after nearly a month-long battle with COVID-19. Joshua worked as a nurse in a California nursing home alongside his sister Jasmine, where they both contracted the virus. Jasmine, who has thankfully recovered, says that they decided to run into the fire and not away from it with their jobs. Joshua had a lifetime love of Disney. He ran a popular social media account about the Disney amusement parks. When he was not helping others, Joshua could be found with a smile on his face, often at Disneyland. His sister likes to think that right now Joshua is in heaven looking for Walt Disney and talking about all the Disney magic. Such a loss. May Joshua's memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 